0: Appreciate it. Go ahead and grab a seat. Make yourself comfortable. Like I said earlier, my name is Luke. If we haven't met yet, I look forward to getting a chance to maybe meeting you after the service. Listen, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to 1 Peter. That's going to be where we're going to continue from last week. If you don't have a Bible, you can punch it into Google. If you have an app, that's fine. It's just always helpful to have the passage in front of you. It's going to be a good passage for us today. Um, I think it is a bit Peter speaking to a people that are very like us today. These are people that are disconnected from each other. They're on lockdown. They're under high pressure. They're detached relationally from others. They're kind of distanced from themselves emotionally. They don't even really know how to live in an ever-changing world. Everything's foggy. They don't know a way forward. And I find that they just need a lot of ministry in this passage, and I do too. (laughs) When I read it, I feel like I need as much ministry as they might need, especially in a day where it just feels like we're running out of dumpsters to set on fire. There's a lot going on from week to week to week. And whenever I open up my news apps, it didn't used to feel like I needed to gear myself up for it. Now I have to spiritually remind myself that God is in control and he is in charge of the cosmos. And he is not distant from the affairs of man. I have to remind myself of that before I even open up a news app. These people are going to be very similar to us, the people that Peter are addressing. Now, here's the thing. They don't need someone to minister to them just by telling them that everything's going to be okay. They needed somebody to tell them why they were going to be okay. And this passage is going to help us feel the same thing. Now, if you weren't here two weeks ago when we started this series, you can always find the sermon somewhere else on YouTube. Just go back a couple weeks. But he basically said, this is not our home. If you are in Christ, you are in exile, a sojourner, and this is not your real home. Now, you're here to invest yourself in this world, to culture this world, to nurture this world, but not conform to it, okay? Last week, we looked at how it's not just home that is different, but our hope is different too. So where we used to attach our hopes and our heavy expectations on the dead ends of the world, and then whenever they collapse, so did our hope. What Jesus does is he gives us a new and what Peter calls a living hope, a hope that will never fade, never be defiled, never fail us and always be guarded for us. So what we're gonna see today is it's not just our home that is different or our hope that is different. Belonging looks different for us now as well. Belonging. Of all things, you know, there's a guy, he's a writer, he's dead now, um, Kurt Vonnegut. He's written quite a bit, and he's an atheist, doesn't believe in God. We don't agree on a lot of things, me and Kurt, but we do agree on one thing that he says he's well known for, and that's that many people desperately need to receive this message, you are not alone. And I agree. There, I agree with him. For someone to look at anybody and say, you belong Here with me. You fit this. Those are some of the most important words we can hear on earth, especially when we're growing up, right? We we all desperately want to fit in. We, We don't want to be outsiders. We want to be insiders. This could be with another person, like a spouse. It could be with a football team. It could be with a peer group at work. It could be with a high school clique. We always find ourselves in these moments where we desperately want to be welcomed and belong to something. But belonging in a broken world, it's kind of a jungle, isn't it? With jungle rules, too. I'm like you. I, I was raised, I was brought up, taught that in order to be an insider, you are going to need to be impressive to the right people in the right ways. That's what it would take to fit in. That's what it would take to be welcomed. I mean, and you probably get this, right? Have you ever bumped into a social group of some kind Whether it's maybe a a, a club or a group or something at work, you you fill in the blank. But instinctively, almost subconsciously, you ask yourself, what does it take to fit in right here? I mean, I can feel myself thinking about that. When I bump into a a puddle of people that I've never met before, but I kind of want to be a part of what's going on, what does it take to fit in? What do I need to do? What does it take to impress these people or this person? And the reason we do that is because being alone and being an outsider, that is soul-crushing. It's nightmarish. And that's because God put it in each and every one of us to belong, to want, to, to, not just to each other, but to Him, right? So Peter's going to address this. So let's look at 1 Peter. Like I said, I'm gonna read it to you and it'll be on the screen if you're here. If you're watching online, I believe it'll be on the screen as well. This is verse 13. This is the word of the Lord for us today will show us Christ compellingly and clearly today. He will preach the gospel in this passage and that's gonna evaluate our hearts. And he says this, therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. We're going to pause it right there. Here's the main just, if I was to summarize that. He's basically telling you and me to be holy, to be holy as he is holy and not to conform to the world and its passions and its futile ways and all of its hungers and desires, all that stuff's passing away. It's calling us to be sober-minded, which just means to be judicial, to be alert, to, to spiritually, I guess, have your head on a swivel. For we are to obey differently, live differently, and, and we are able to do so because of this imperishable seed of Jesus that was given to us through the very thoughtful foreknowledge of God. That's a summary. But if I was to summarize it even further than that, I'm going to just say what we all picked up in that passage, which is, you are to be holy as He is holy. We're to be holy. We're called to be holy. But that's a tricky thing, right? to To, to get a hold of, a little frightening, maybe. What What does it even mean to be holy? How literally are we supposed to take that? Seriously, how does God see us when we are less than holy? Do we still fit? Do we still belong? What's cool about this passage, and this is one of the reasons that I love the Bible so much, is Peter's actually quoting out of Leviticus, of all books. He's quoting out of Leviticus 11, where Moses is talking about dietary restrictions of all things, right? Which is interesting. It's one of those passages that you only read when you're reading through the Bible in a year. (laughs) <laughs> or or, two year, or 10 years, I won't judge you, whatever speed it takes you to read through the Bible, but even when you read it, you don't really read it. You know what I'm saying? You kind of cruise through it. You're not like journaling through Leviticus 11 because it just, there's no straight line that is drawn from that time and that passage to our very modern lives today. No one enjoys hearing what they can and cannot eat, and that's Today. Even less do we enjoy listening to what people were and were not allowed to eat thousands of years ago. But this is what he says in a Leviticus 11. Moses is writing and he is speaking and, and God says, for I, am your, I, for I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with swarming things that crawl on the ground, Okay. It's like geckos and lizards and snakes and field mice, you know. So stuff we buy traps for. <laughs> That's what he's saying. Don't eat those things. Bear grills eat those things, but he gets paid a lot of money to do that. We buy traps for those things. That's the swarming things that he's discussing. This, this whole chunk of Leviticus, and actually the, the few chapters before and after, is nothing, nothing but God instructing his people on new regulations how ceremonies are supposed to happen things like sacrifices worship regulations priesthood regulations ceremonies feasts special days what you can't eat what you can't eat right it just seems weird it seems odd when you read it like it's extra ink it doesn't really matter for today. I mean, if, if God were to tell you and maybe invite you to delete one book from your Bible, you'd be nervous about it. It'd probably be Leviticus though, right? It probably would be because like I said, there's no straight line from this passage to our lives today, our modern lives. Because what do you care about kosher regulations? You don't. You live in a world of 5G and mortgage payments and TikTok self-driving cars, I mean, how, how does Leviticus and First Peter transform the way we see God? I and mean, therefore, the way we see ourselves, the way we live, the way we worship. Here's the thing, there is a straight line from Leviticus through First Peter straight to your life today. And it actually passes through Exodus first. And listen, I'm going to give a nickel tour, so if you're not familiar with the Bible, this will catch you up, right? Exodus is a beautiful story. When you condense it down, what it really is is a powerful God rescuing his people because he is their God and they are his people, his people from a land of burden. And they leave this land of burden, passing through the Red Sea, and they end up doing what? Exiled, sojourning, traveling through a place that is not their home. But they are his people. And every nation would know this. This happened publicly. The nations of the the world knew those people are different and that God is different. The different people belong to a different God. This is what he says in Exodus 6. God says, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. And you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who has brought you out from under the burdens of Egypt. And, and, and here's the thing, they wouldn't fit anymore with the nations of the world. They just didn't look the same. So what God would do right after that is give them the Ten Commandments. None of the other nations had Ten Commandments. These were new. This would make them look odd, make them look weird. And then he would also inject all these new, odd regulations. That's what Leviticus is showing us. These new, weird rules, right? Like when you can rest, what kind of fish you could eat, when was the right time to sacrifice something, and who could do it. And you had to know that they walked away from these moments of getting all of these new laws and new regulations. They had to think what you would think, what I would think, which is, this is weird. Like, this makes us look weird. This is odd, and it feels odd. And here's the thing it was designed to. just think about the Sabbath for a moment, something that was given to this new nation. The Sabbath says that they would rest one day out of seven. This is what this means, though. They would be 15% less productive than all the other nations around them. They would be resting while some nation is making cell phones and hockey pucks and cars and whatever. They're doing nothing. You don't think that felt weird? You don't think that changed the way they looked? Everything would be different for this people because this is a different people. In a land where everyone said the same things and did the same things, they would not belong. Now the cool thing about Leviticus is most of these regulations and things that God is setting up are actually there, and this is the primary interest we have with them, is they point to Jesus later on. When you read some of these things in Leviticus, it is there for you to start to see Jesus more completely, Jesus who would be a better tabernacle, who would come and tabernacle with you and me, not with curtains and stuff like that, but with flesh, the flesh of mankind. We would see Jesus through the various sacrifices that are talked about, how they weren't allowed to have a blemish, and then Jesus would come as the perfect lamb of God, who wouldn't have any physical blemish nor a moral one. He'd be the perfect sacrifice, the last sacrifice by the last priest. We would see Jesus through this thing called the Sabbath, who would work hard for us so we could rest. That's why the Sabbath is in there. So it has this ultimate purpose in your Bible, but it also had a direct application to these people because it was going to show the world that they were different. They weren't the same. This is what it means to be holy. Holy doesn't mean perfect as much as it means pure and set apart. It means different, strange, strange. This part of our passage is far less about what is and is not allowed. It's mostly about who belongs to who. Who belongs. Being holy speaks to our belonging to God and then being patterned after him, right? But now as a young Christian, as I was growing up and just trying to figure out this thing called the Bible, I always had this question here, so why don't we still follow these passages in Leviticus? It's not a bad question. They're in there. Why aren't we following them, right? The truth is, some people still do. And it's because they don't accept the gospel as we preach the gospel here. They don't see Christ as the centerpiece of our affection and our salvation story. So for them to belong to God, they still have to be perfect and impressive. They have to follow meticulously all of the religious regulations and rules and culture that had to fit. For Christians, though, Jesus fulfills this older covenant And as the last priest and the last sacrifice on the last very special day, Jesus, who truly belonged to God, Jesus, who is truly different and truly pure, truly set apart, would give himself working hard, living perfectly, dying, and then living again so that you and I can belong, so that we can belong, perfectly belong. And what does that mean? It means now you are free to eat pork catfish, snake, you're free to eat those things. You're free to Sabbath differently than the person next to you. You're free to treat a day special or someone else might treat it a little less special. There's freedom in that, in the regulations. That's what, if you go back and you read the latter part of Romans around chapter 14, that's what Paul means when he says, hey, listen, some people eat this kind of food like meat and then some people are just eating vegetables and that's cool. And then some people are, are celebrating this day as special and some people just don't and that's fine why is he doing that? He's saying, listen, no longer do meticulous following of these regulations set you apart from the world. You now belong because of Christ. Because of Jesus, you belong. So why do we need these chapters? Listen, don't be so quick to delete them. Leviticus is very, very valuable for our daily living. In fact, Paul tells Timothy this and. 2 Timothy 3, he says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. Profitable for you and me, for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. Every word in this Bible is profitable to encourage you, to challenge you, to lead you, to bring you to tears, to bring you to laughter. It is profitable. And here is no different. Because now when Peter's writing about it, now we're going to fast forward. Peter's writing to this church, right? But Peter's writing in a world where the gospel is going to be hijacked. It's not pure. Being holy would mean for a lot of people, not depending on Jesus, but to again go back and follow the law religiously. It would be to behave. For a lot of people to belong to God would mean to, once again, just be impressive at the right time, with the right people, over the right things. And that, I think, is where we can draw a direct line from this passage to our complex lives Because I'm just like you. My factory setting, when I came out of the womb, and when I go from day to day, it's just to want to belong. I want to belong. I want to fit in. I want to belong to God. I want to belong to people. I want to belong to groups. And I still have some of the jungle rules rattling around in me, which is I just need to be impressive. I need to be clean. I need to be better. I need to behave differently. I need to perform. And what the gospel does is it brings an upheaval to this where no longer is belonging hinging on our performance. It hinges on the performance of Jesus. Easier said than done. But the best part about the gospel is that he looks at you, totally despite your performance, and he says, you belong. That's what we've always wanted to hear. You belong. Yeah, but God, I don't perform very well. You belong. You belong because before the world even spun into action, I pursued you. I loved you at the right time. You belong. You fit. Listen, I feel so strongly about this part of the gospel, this fact that if I could preach one sermon for the rest of my life in Knoxville, Tennessee, this would be it. And it wouldn't even matter really what passage you gave me. I would get to it eventually. The fact that we are loved not because of our work but because of the work of God. That Jesus redeemed us through his activity, not our activity. That Jesus welcomes us and we belong, not because of our work, but because of his work. That we fit, not because of our undertakings and our might and our strength and our will and our discipline, but because of his. And so when we do obey and behave, it's out of an overflow of joy and love and peace. But make no mistake, our performance is not an application to get God to like us more. That, friends, is what the southern culture needs to hear. And this gospel, which is such a good message, planned, like I said, foreknown, considered before sound existed, before light existed, before molecules were assembled, Jesus would see you far off needing to be rescued, needing to be redeemed. In Peter's word, ransomed, and he would arrive on the scene for your benefit and his glory right at the right time. This Jesus is holy, set apart, different Pure, belonging to God. And now we are in his shape, patterned after him to be holy as well. We're purchased. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, for you were bought with a price. You're bought, so glorify God in your body. You belong to him. Very similar to what he said back in Exodus. You belong to me, and we still do. But what does this mean? It means we look weird in this world. It means we should look odd, right? We're exiles here. We stand out. We, sh- we shouldn't look anything other than strange. Not just zealous, but too zealous. That's what my friends told me right when I got radically saved in college. It was like, Luke, I mean, we get it. You love Jesus, but look a little bananas. You look a little zealous. And all I did was I just loved God more than they did, right? But that's what it feels like. You're going you're gonna to not fit in. Think about, think about it. If you handled your finances sacrificially, Generously, consistently. If you had a biblical understanding of how to handle your finances, you won't look like your neighbor. You will look strange to the world. Your CPA will look at your finances and say, you're a little bit more generous to nonprofits and churches than the average client. You won't be able to drive what everybody else drives that makes the same amount of money as you. You won't dress like everyone else dresses that makes the same amount of money as you do. You will look different. Listen, same thing with your time, you handle that differently, the way that you are biblically prescribed to walk your time out on this earth, you will look odd, you will look strange. How about forgiveness? You forgive where the world doesn't forgive, you reconcile where the world's not willing to reconcile, you're gonna look strange. You're not gonna fit, not gonna fit. But here's where the passage finds me broken. It finds me unholy. Because I look at my life a lot of times and I say, I don't, I don't think I look very weird. I think I look more like a resident than I do an exile. I don't know that I stand out quite like I need to stand out. So what do we do when we come to that revelation? We have this heavy conviction in our heart that we, we're, we're not tracking well. We don't look like an exile. We look like we're setting up camp and all of our values are here. What do we do? We do a couple things. One of them is without Jesus, we try to clean ourselves so that we can belong to God. We might obey, we might make some resolutions, we might make some changes, I'm gonna behave better, I'm gonna perform differently, but it's not out of an overflow, it's out of a fear of not belonging to God anymore. If I don't do these things, he won't like me as much, I won't be as accepted. So we go back to the jungle rules. We practice what we are known to do through our whole life, and we just work to be more impressive to God so that maybe, maybe we still fit, we belong. So we clean ourselves, make ourselves pure again, acceptable again. This is what he calls feudal in the passage. He says, don't, don't, don't worry about the feudal things of your forefathers. In fact, he says, you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. Listen, forefathers, it doesn't just mean like your dad and your grandpa. I guess it could mean that. It just means the heavy shaping voices from generations behind you. That's all it means. It's Socrates. That's a forefather. Plato. Um, Freud, Kierkegaard, these are shapers, forefathers, Run DMC, that was one for me, don't know about you, right? Dolly Parton for some of us in here, right? These are shaping voices that provoke maybe a different way of looking at God and therefore a way of looking at yourself. And here's the thing, you don't even have to have read any Freud to be shaped by Freud. It builds the culture that we all swim and breathe in. We're products of it. Those are what we call forefathers, forefathers. And that's what he's discussing. And one of the rules passed down to us from generations past is this rule of futility that if you want to belong, if you want to win friends and influence people, there are things you're going to need to do first to be impressive. That's a fact. And that's what I learned early in life, that if I want to be accepted and loved and welcome in this hard, hard world, I'm going to have to be impressive if I want to fit in and belong. And listen, as a pastor, I'll tell you the traditional American church has been happy to oblige here. Happy to oblige. Yeah, you do need to change. You do need to change. Sure, the church is for everybody, but God likes you more if you're more polished, if you're less dirty, if you're more clean. That's what I grew up in as a little kid. That's what I remember walking away. God loves everybody, but not really. God loves all of his kids, but especially the clean, clean ones. And this is what the average person believes who does not attend a church, who does not believe in God. Church is where people go to hear how they're not behaving well. No thanks, right? No thanks. That's why I bailed on church as a college student. I didn't want to hear. I knew I was unholy. Come on. I knew I was impure. I knew I had issues. I knew I had a lot of self cleaning to do. It's just easier to stay away. It's easier. This is why the gospel is so scandalous. It mocks rule number one. It mocks. It it turns it over where you belong, not because you're impressive, but because Jesus was very impressive. He had perfect obedience, and it removes your need to prove yourself in order to fit. So no longer are you chained to behave, you are free to behave. Let me say that differently. You're no longer changed to impressively be obedient in order to belong to God. Listen, that makes some people squirm a little bit. It might make you squirm a little bit when I say that, that you don't have to behave a certain way to be impressive, to be belong, to to fit in with God. Luke, aren't we supposed to obey? I mean, we are supposed to obey, right? We are supposed to be pure, the passage says as much. Yeah, but you're free to be that. You're free to behave. You're free to obey. You're free to be pure. Yes, purity is our calling. We are designed to stand out, just like exiles. But we don't obey in order to belong. We obey because we already do. And that's the difference between the gospel and religion. We know this is because he says early on in our passage that our hope is fully on the grace that will be brought to us. Fully. Not partially. Not two-thirds. Not mostly fully, our hope is fully on the grace that will be brought to us. God brings us belonging because Jesus, because Jesus was good despite our unimpressive disobedience. Here's, here's a real-time manifestation of what this would look like, right? I want you to imagine after you sin. After that thing that you do, that you always do, that you can't quit doing. That thing that you can't put down, that thing that's a shame to you, that thing that you don't even tell anybody else. I don't even know what it is. I won't even try to fill in the blanks for you. You know what it is. But that thing that we all do, or that you do, after you do that, do you wonder if you still fit? Do you wonder if you still belong? Or do you say to yourself, I'm not holy, I'm not pure? Listen, this is one of the biggest questions that Christians have today. When I grew up in a church as a young person, I grew up in a type of church that was really, really, really big on altar calls. Listen, I'm not going to kick on that either. I'm fine with altar calls too. I think it's great to have a moment where people come up and they say, listen, I just need to get my life right. Is there someone I can talk to? Is there someone I can pray with? I think that's great. They would also put this, I guess, a little, a little asterisk underneath it and say, if you want to rededicate your life, then come up and pray with somebody. I, I heard it every single week. And I understand what they were trying to do. Rededication is just, hey, my life isn't where I want it to be. I'm going to go up and pray with someone and get my life where it needs to be. That's what we called rededication. So if you're kind of new to the church and you've ever heard that, that's what's going on. That's what they're talking about. I just know as one who would march down that aisle every single week to rededicate, the real motive I had is I just wanted to fit. I wasn't impressive that week, and I wanted to belong, and I was scared. So I was going to change. I was going to obey. I was going to behave, but it's so that I would maybe belong so that I would fit. That's not the gospel. The gospel says you are not loved because you obey, you obey because you are loved, and if you switch the order, you get something very not Christian, very not Christian. You'll get a broken religion full of shame-based obedience and a calendar full of rededications. This is what Buddhism is based on, Islam, Hinduism, they're merit-based. You get favor from a god because you performed well. Christianity says you're free to obey because God has given you favor. It's totally different. It's totally different. Now all of this is going to require what he calls very early in this passage a sober mind. Some of your Bibles say to gird up your mind. I'm just going to explain what that means. Gird, you just need to remember that back then everybody wore like a long flowing robe, like a snuggie, You know, probably had armholes, maybe a belt, but you couldn't do anything with it. You could like sit and watch TV in it, but you couldn't run around in it, couldn't fight to the death, couldn't do any burpees. It was a a rope. So if you wanted to be ready for action, you would pull up the rope and tuck it into your girdle. That's where the word gird is. That's why it says the way it says. So tuck it into your belt, tuck it into where you can kind of be a little bit more, you have some more mobility in your legs, I guess. But it's not something you do without planning some action. So when he says, gird up your mind or have a sober mind, it's a mind that is ready for action. It's not passive meditation. It's a thinking that has motion to it that will land in an executable item. And listen, that's a sermon series all unto itself. I'm gonna pick one thing before we finish this. In 2 Corinthians 10, Paul has this discussion with a small church, smaller than ours, and he says this, For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but we have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. This is interesting. An active, alert, girded mind, it evaluates the thoughts that we have. It doesn't let a thought just run in and run out. It takes it captive. It evaluates it. It puts it up against the word of God to see if that thought's anywhere close to true. It does battle. It's an active thing. A distant, unalert mind will do two things. It will be unready for action, that's for sure, but it'll, one, it will just kind of go with the drift of culture. It will just kind of pick up whatever culture says, and that's why you'll have a lot of, a lot of Christians, they kind of take a step back and they're like, well, I don't know. I mean, maybe abortion is okay. Maybe it is all right. I mean, the Bible is kind of old. It doesn't really address 2021. It is kind of archaic. I mean, maybe gender is fluid. I don't know. Maybe it is. That's what happens when you don't have an alert mind, when you're not taking thoughts captive. You just let stuff run in and run out. That's one of the things that can happen. The second, which is what we're talking about mostly today, is we start following religious statutes, and we don't even think about what we're doing. Maybe it's not about just what Jesus does alone. Maybe my hope isn't fully on the gospel. Maybe it's partially. Maybe I have to add some of my own clean behavior. Maybe what Jesus did on the cross was not 100% good enough. Maybe I need to crawl up on the cross and add some of my own activity, add some of my own suffering, some of my own obedience. And again, when I was a young Christian and I would hear this gospel put out there for me, I would think, is that so bad though? Is it so bad that people are behaving now, that people are actually doing good things? Why is that so bad, even if they're doing it for a wrong reason? Here's the answer, it's horrible. If people are behaving for sick reasons, it's horrible. If you can belong to Jesus because you had a good week of performance, then what he did on the cross was just not necessary. If you could be impressive enough by how you obeyed that month, enough to get God to like you, then the cross wasn't necessary. And friends, hear me now. Let's extrapolate it. If the cross wasn't necessary, then God is incredibly cruel. If the cross wasn't necessary, then what was God even doing? It does look like child abuse at that point. So yeah, it's bad. If we put some of our hope on our performance and some of our our hope on Jesus, then it equals nothing. That's why we used to say Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. So we don't want to deny Jesus. We say he deserves all of our hope and we pin all of our hope on the gospel. But let me just say this, and this is a singular application I guess for us. A mind that is ready for action, a girded up mind, is not just good at taking captive the thoughts that we have about ourselves and have about God within our own gourd rattling around, but we're able to hear what our friends say it in community and preach the gospel to them, right? It kind of helped them take their thoughts captive a little bit. This is what community is supposed to do and do well to learn to preach the gospel to each other. Because as we say all the time, the gospel is not just for salvation, it's to sustain us as well. It's a sustaining good news, it brings, it brings life to the dead, certainly. It brings life to the living as well. It brings life to all of us. So whenever you sense somebody in your missional community or your DNA group or whatever your your, your relational matrix is in the church, if you sense somebody being, let's say self-righteous, legalistic, right? And you can tell because they march around with a ruler, and they measure everybody by performance on how they behave, and they kind of maybe put the ruler up against them, and they always seem to win in that deal, right? They're self-righteous. Whenever you sense somebody doing that, it does no good to tell them to stop being self-righteous. Hey, stop being a jerk. So legalistic. That, That might arrest a thought, but it's not bringing ministry to it. What are they doing wrong? Show them the gospel. Show them the fact that they are relying so much on their own performance that they're denying that Jesus even had one, that it was even necessary. Apply. This is what we call evangelism. You evangelize the saved, just like you evangelize the lost. Evangelize anyone who has ears to hear. Anyone that does. The same thing when people are starting to retreat. This is a second example. You've noticed if there's people that are in community with you and then they just kind of suddenly disappear. And it's not because they're traveling, it's not because of COVID. It's not because they're working hard. It, it is because they have blown it again. They've done it again. And they just can't bear it. They, they can't bring themselves to show their face because they have done something egregious again. So, so they want to clean themselves. So they roll up their sleeves and they get busy behaving. Behaving being meticulous with religious rules. They start cleaning themselves as much as they can just so they can open the Bible again and not feel like a hypocrite. Just so they can show up to a a missional community meeting or something like this and not feel dirty. It does them no good to just say, hey, it's no big deal, just show up. It's not ministry. Gospel ministry where you evangelize them is to carry the gospel to them and show them why they are perfect for something like this. (laughs) Listen, if you're failed, if you're failed, You're perfect for the gospel. And the gospel's perfect for you. See, we don't just need this gospel to become a Christian. Man, I need it every single day to sustain me. I need to be evangelized every day. We need to gospel each other. We need to fight and be courageous with each other. We need to gird our minds for action. We need to take thoughts captive. And listen, some of you... If you're watching, or even you're here, or maybe you're here and you're working with someone who they would say they are far from Christ, I think we can all agree that those who are far from Christ, whether it's you or someone you know, that belonging is one of the core desires we have as humans. To just fit. Even if you're a loner, you want to belong. We all want to fit in. We want to be welcomed and loved. We want to be inside and not outside. Like I said, it's hellish to be outside let me just say the gospel is the message of you are not alone that is that is a piece of the gospel soundtrack some of the sweetest words you'll ever hear through your ears is well done my child you fit you're welcome you belong and I'm excited to have you here we we, we all want to hear that but let me tell you, if you are far from Christ and you have even been somewhat pinning your hope on your performance, on your ability to read a Bible every day or pray every day or show up to some if you are pinning your dependence on your performance, you are missing the gospel by a country mile. As Peter says, we hope fully on the gospel that will be brought to us through Jesus, fully. So go ahead and stand with me. We're going we're to finish this. We're going to take communion together. And listen, if you're, if you're not a Christian, don't worry about communion. Don't worry about this moment. All right? It's not something that you need to feel like you need to take part of. This is something that we do as a church. You don't even have to be part of Legacy Church. If you are, so, if you are a Christian and part of God's global church, we, we invite you to be a part of this. So someone's going to come in in a minute with, the, with a, a tray full of these, so if you uh, fail to get one on the way coming in, That's fine, they'll just give you one if you want to be a part of this. They'll be in in a second, and I'll have you raise your hand. But I want to use this also as an opportunity today to evangelize all of us, right? Like I said, we evangelize anyone who has ears. If you're far from Christ, you're close to Christ, hear this, this blood was spilt. This body was broken. When we take this in remembrance of him, let me hear me now, it feels odd. I mean, is this not weird? This is weird. It was, it was weird when we had a little piece of bread with a little little bowl of juice. That was weird. This is weird. Other clubs don't do this. Other people groups don't do this. Other rhythms don't do this, but we're doing it. But we're exiles. We belong to a very set-apart God. and We are his set-apart people. And what are we doing? We're going to memorialize a set-apart moment. Okay? If you need one of these, raise your hand and... Ben will get you one. So what we'll do is we'll I'll peel off the top. You, what you're going to want to do is peel off the top layer. It's got two lids because not, it's not confusing to have two lids, right? This one has two lids. So be careful when you open it, and then there'll be a wafer, and then the second lid will get you access to the juice. So I'm going to pray this through with you. Father, we thank you for being good and kind to us. And we don't just take this as a remembrance of what you have done to make us belong. We also take it with the hopes, just fully set on you, that there is a place waiting for us. We we belong. You've made room for us, space for us, at a banqueting table, in your family room. You've created room for us. Room where when we enter, you say, hey, welcome, you belong here, you fit in. And it's not because of what we did, It's because of a body broken and a blood spilled. So we take this bread in remembrance of you. And Father, we thank you for this blood that's represented in the juice. It's not real blood, obviously. But what it memorializes, what it symbolizes, is the fact that there was blood spilt for us, not from just an animal, not even from a perfect animal, but from the perfect lamb of God. Perfect in every way, fulfilling a covenant perfectly. And then we get to be a people of Sabbath, a people that rest all the work done for us. We no longer have to break a sweat performing obeying and behaving just so that we could get dad's attention you've done it all for us and we belong to you because of it so we take this juice in remembrance of you listen day is coming where we will no longer be odd in this world we're going to be treasured in the next Whatever your trial is today, whatever your sadness is, I want you to remember that you're in exile here, and this is not your home. And all the hopes around you that are collapsing—that's not your living hope. This is not your home, and your hopes are not invested here. You were purchased to belong to Him, and belong to Him we do. Set apart God with a set apart people. Until then, let's fight. Let's evangelize each other let's break free from the futile ways that were handed down to us and let's trust fully in the gospel, amen.